Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to this week's Core Concepts, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from Carolina's Medical Center's EM Group. Today, we have Drs. Katie Lupez, Drew Kitchen, and Russell Tregonis. Today's EM Guidewire podcast is brought to you by Families Eating Quesadillas, because nothing says NPO and the worst day of my life like your family sitting next to you eating a delicious quesadilla. Thanks so much for that, Drew. So today, we're actually going to be talking about the code card. Now, this is something we get to use when we're having some of our most exciting patients in the emergency department. When someone comes in coding, someone rolls in a big old cart, we throw pads on a patient, and then someone rips open that top drawer where we have a bunch of vials of drugs. Now, Dr. Kitchen, I've heard, how do you normally administer these medications? So I have a really good system for that. I look at the nurse, I make eye contact, and then I loudly ask for the dose and medicine I want and then they do it because they're really amazing and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> that might not always work, Drew. Exactly. So um, while that technique will work a lot of the times, I think there really is some benefit to knowing exactly what meds are in the code cart and how the vials are labeled, how many doses are in each one, just a lot of little information. Now, I will start off this podcast with a caveat saying that this podcast is going to be specific to our code carts here at CMC Emergency Department. While most code cards may be pretty similar because they're all based off of ACLS algorithms, the drugs you're using, blah, 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 each cart might be a little bit different. So before you take everything you hear here at face value, make sure you check your own code card just so you know the medications that are in there, what doses they are, and how they're administered. All right. Well, I'm ready to jump in. So I open the top drawer of the code cart, and it's like Christmas morning here. I've got a bunch of colorful packages. Russ, which one are we going to open first? Well, it all depends what this patient's here for. But let's start off with kind of one of your classic situations. So the big yellow box, sometimes in our code cards in the top right corner, is actually going to be calcium chloride. Now, calcium chloride, as everyone here knows, in the code situation, we use it for hyperkalemia. We have this theoretical thing where we're saying it's stabilizing the cardiac membranes, and we're not here to talk about the electrophysiology of it, but this is how we're going to fix hyperkalemia, especially if a patient is acutely coding from it. Now, our vials are actually pre-measured out with one gram per 10 cc syringe. The syringes are pre-made, so all you have to do is ask for an amp of calcium chloride, and they'll deliver one gram in those 10 cc's as a quick flush. Yeah, but Russ, what if I have a coding patient and they only have peripheral access? Am I really supposed to be using that calcium chloride? Hey, Lupez, is that patient dead right now? Mm, yeah, it is. And what are you worried about right now? Bringing them back to life. Exactly. So at the end of the day, in a code situation, you give that calcium chloride wherever you can. Sometimes an IO will be your best access. Sometimes you have a peripheral IV. We do worry about the extravasation and all the complications that can come from that. But in a patient that's dead, you're not going to make them more dead. We're trying to stabilize their heart so we can start beating again so we can get a pulse back. But why are we worried about giving that calcium chloride peripherally anyways? So here's the fun stuff that comes with the chemistry. So calcium chloride actually has a strong ionization constant, which basically means that it will split up very quickly as soon as it hits the serum. So that calcium will separate from the chloride, and both of those are going to be pretty strong reagents. If they meet up with the subcutaneous tissue and stuff like that, they can acutely necrose that area and cause some really bad complications down the road. Right now, we're not that worried about that, but let's go on to our next medication, something that's going to be a lot more fun. Katie, grab that epi for me. 
All right, we're ready to go. A little bit hotly debated topic right now using epinephrine and cardiac arrest. But say we are using our algorithm, our ACLS, our first drug we're going to go to is going to be our epinephrine. So our epinephrine in our carts are going to be one milligram of epinephrine per a 10 cc syringe. And so this is described as the one to 10,000 epinephrine. Essentially what this means is that that one milligram of epinephrine is diluted in 10 cc's of normal saline, as opposed to our 1 to 1,000 epinephrine, which is diluted in a much smaller concentration, and this is what is used for our anaphylactic shock that we're giving intramuscularly. So in our code cart, we have one milligram of epi that's up next, and it's going to be given with a 10 cc push, also called an amp of epi. Now, I think either one that you give, as long as you're giving one milligram, it'll work. It's just one's a lot harder to suck out of that tiny little glass vial. But Russ, you have a really cool trick that you use for our code epi, and what is it? So this is something that I wish I could take credit for myself. It's been on a bunch of different podcasts, probably most popularized by Dr. Scott Weingart with the EM Crit podcast, but this is the idea of push-dose epi. Now, with that one milligram of code epi that we use during the codes, that's a great dose if the patient's dead. Once the patient is no longer dead, once we're starting to circulate some blood, that one milligram is way, way, way too much to give an actively living and breathing patient. So what can we do to try and minimize that? What can we do to still get some of that both alpha and beta agonism of the epi without giving them huge doses? And the concept here is going to be creating our own little vial of something called push-dose epi. Now, we're going to attach a set of show notes where you can kind of look through all these calculations yourself, but what we do in principle here is we'll take a 10cc normal saline flush, the ones that are kind of laying all over the place, and I want you to squirt out just one cc of it, Drew. Just one cc. Okay, done. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry, Katie. Okay, so we've gotten rid of one cc of that normal saline. So now we have a saline flush with nine cc's left in it. What I want to do is hook that up to a three-way stopcock where we can now inject one cc of our code epinephrine. So once again, Katie, what's the concentration of that? So it's one milligram per 10 cc's, which is that one to 10,000 concentration. Perfect. So we're going to take one cc of that 1 to 10,000 epinephrine, that pre-filled syringe that comes in our code cart, and we want to inject that back into our normal saline. So now we will have nine cc's of normal saline and one cc of epinephrine in there. With that, we shake it up, mix it up real good. Drew, you got that? Uh, there's a lot of math going on here. Uh, carry the four. Yeah, so it's going to be 10 mics per cc, Drew. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we now have a vial of push-dose epinephrine or a syringe of push-dose epinephrine, and that's going to have 10 mics per cc in it. Now, the beautiful thing about that is now we can just administer this in one cc increments, just a small push after a small push after a small push for any patients that's in that kind of peri-arrest phase where they have bradycardia and hypotension. So you're essentially like your own drip, given about 10 mics a minute, would you say? I love it, Katie. I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do here. If you think about what we normally run our epi at when it's on a drip, it's going to be anywhere from 5 to 20 to whatever you got to do to get that patient a good blood pressure. If we administer 1 cc every minute, that's like us giving 10 mics a minute, almost like a drip. So it's a really great system to give us a little bit of an extra push while we're trying to get the patient to the next place where they got to be. So just to recap, for a bunch of people whose eyes glaze over when you've got math going on like I do, you're essentially trying to get a 10 microgram per cc push. This is done by putting one cc of your epi into nine cc's of your saline. I couldn't have said it better myself, Drew. I mean, I did say it better myself, but I almost couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, so what about this dirty epi drip? 
Tell me about that. Yeah, so if Russell didn't talk to you about math enough, I'm going to talk to you about some more math. Instead of putting our one mig into a small syringe, this time we're going to be putting that one mig amp of epi into an entire liter of normal saline so that once we shake it on up, one milliliter is going to contain one mic of epinephrine. So essentially, when you're hooking a patient up to a dirty epi drip, every cc of liquid that's going in is one mic of epinephrine. So if you've got an 18 gauge IV and you're running it wide open, it's running at a rate of about 20 mics a minute. But if you are able to hook it up to a pump, you can create the amount of cc's that are going in per minute and that's going to be the amount of micrograms your patient is getting per minute. I love it. So we just talked about how we can take our code epinephrine, the epi that we pulled right out of our code cart, and turn it into one, a quick syringe where we can do push doses of epinephrine, or two, a drip. Both things that we can use to kind of help sustain whatever blood pressure our patient has while we're trying to get to the next step. Thanks so much for walking us through that, Lupez. You got it, bruh. So let's go back to our cart now. So we've taken out our epi, we've taken out our calcium, and we're going to see what's next. And we can actually kind of go with a common theme here. Now, something else that's actually in our code cart are going to be little vials of norepinephrine. And this is something that I was surprised by the first time I saw. There are these little glass vials with four milligrams of norepinephrine in every four milliliters of fluid. When I first saw this, I was like, do we use push-dose norepi? But no, actually what this is used for is creating our own norepi drip. You just take those four milliliters of norepinephrine, put them in 250 cc's of D5W, and then you've created a drip for norepinephrine. So you can quickly hang that and get to the patient. And what does that come out to? So uh, hold on. Uh, again, math. Uh, carry the three. So that's 16 mics of epi per milliliter. 16 mics of norepi, Dr. Kitchen. Ah, should have left the three. Okay, so 16 micrograms of norepinephrine per cc. And we like to start at seven, but in general, the dosing is, again, 0.1 microgram per kg per minute, correct? Correct. And normally that'll come out to anywhere from four to seven to whatever dose you want to get up to, whatever dose of norepi they need. All right, Drew, I'm tired of all this math. Let's get back to the simple stuff. What about that atropine? Oh, God, finally. I got this one. I got this one. 0.5 milligrams. That's cute and all that you know the dose, but... How much of the syringe are you going to give? <clears throat> so the reason why I'm bringing this up is this is going to be one of the instances where our pre-filled syringe actually doesn't line up with the normal dose that we give. So atropine comes in one milligram per 10 cc. Now, as Dr. Kitchen expertly said, our normal dose for our bradycardic patients is going to be 0.5 mg at a time. So that actually means we only give half of the syringe. So we can use the syringe for two consecutive doses. Now. Dr. Kitchen, I'm going to bring this back over to you. How frequently can we do that? Uh, this one I also know. Every one to three minutes. Perfect. So we can use that atropine every one to three minutes up to a max dose of? Three milligrams. So we can use that every one to three minutes up to a max dose of three milligrams. And once we get to three milligrams, we've basically maximized out whatever inhibition of the vagus nerve that we're going to get. So if our patient's still bradycardic, let's go ahead and go to the next option. Yeah, so like you said, we're using our atropine if our patient's bradycardic. But there is another drug in our code cart, and that is... Good old dopamine. Dopamine. So this is often used in our emergency department as an inotropic agent, but it can also be used for pure bradycardia, and it's actually within our ACLS algorithm. And what is the dose for this, Drew? So I guess it depends on who you believe, but at different doses, 
there's the thinking that theoretically dopamine saturates different receptors at very low dose or what they call renal dopamine. You're hitting your dopamine receptors in your kidneys that are causing vasodilation. The doses we use it at is usually starting around five to 10 mics per kg per minute. And at that point, it's thought that you're saturating maximally your beta one receptors. And that's what's causing your heart rate and contractility. Any higher than 10 and you start to get alpha one vasoconstriction predominance. And at that point, it starts asking a lot more like a presser. So it's a great agent to use from that standpoint. If our atropine isn't working, we use dopamine to get some of our adrenergic receptors. However, there are some complications with dopamine. And what are those, Lupez? Yeah, because it is such an adrenergic agent, it can lead to arrhythmias and also actually can cause peripheral hypotension as well. And those are things we have to look out for. So great thoughts to think about here. So dopamine is going to be good if our atropine isn't working. We can help speed up our heart rate, but we always have to worry about either arrhythmias or maybe even getting some hypotension from it. So maybe not the first thing we grab, but definitely something else we want to have in our code guard. Nice thing is the bag's already mixed. Bag's already mixed. Gotta love that. So now that we've went through that bag, let's go on to another vial. And this is going to be a vial of something we use pretty frequently and a relatively straight shooter, and that's going to be adenosine. So adenosine comes prepackaged into 6 milligram per 2 cc vials. Now, when we're giving adenosine, we're giving it for SVT. We might not be 100% sure what the cause of the SVT is, but if we have a young, healthy patient suddenly got a real fast heart rate, said this has happened before, we're thinking, okay, this is going to be normal SVT, and this is something we can try and break with adenosine. Now, the dosing of this is something that's up to some debate. Some people say just push six milligrams, which is a single vial, whereas some people will say we can use a full 12 milligrams. I'm a fan of just using full 12. If I'm going to try and slow down this patient's heart rate, I want to do one hit and, and one big hit. So I was actually talking with Johnny Tsunami about this last weekend, and he said, go big or go home. I mean, Johnny Tsunami, excuse me, Dr. Tsunami, that's my mistake. He didn't go to service school for four years to be called Johnny Tsunami. Boys, 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 back to the adenosine. So I know, Russ, you go big or you go home, but I like to use six milligram pushes because sometimes it can convert them. So don't always go big or go home. Whatever you do, just give it fast. I love it. Okay, what do we have next, Dr. Kitchen? Next is amiodarone. This is a drug that I don't usually reach for first, usually because when I think of giving it, I'm thinking about unstable ventricular arrhythmias. I'm talking VFib and VTAC. And obviously, we all know that the best treatment for that in a code situation is a nice old jolt to the chest. Shock them. However, if you are going to give it for refractory VFib or VTAC that you're trying to actively defibrillate, 300 milligrams or two of these bad boys, two vials that are coming 150 milligram vials, should do the trick. If it doesn't work, you can try one more vial at 150 for a total of 450. Now, that's important to realize that's a far cry from your stable tachycardia AFib with RVR. Do you want to talk about that, Russ? So if we just have a stable tachycardia, the patient's not dead on the table. We just have a tachycardia that we want to slow down, and maybe they're hypotensive, so we don't like our normal dig, dilt, or whatever other combo. We can just give 150 milligrams or a single vial of amiodarone as your initial bolus while we get a drip drawn up. Speaking of ventricular tachycardias, there is another old-school drug that's out there that we can use, and that is in our code cards. You're talking about cocaine, aren't you? <laughs> talking about something similar to cocaine. Methamphetamine. A little bit similar in a different way. This is an alpha blocker, and it's a quick alpha blocker, is lidocaine. And what do we use that for, Drew? Uh, we can use it for a lot of things, sewing up lax. Um, oh, yeah, 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 converting people out of arrhythmias. I mean, it's really six and one half dozen of the other. I, I use the exact same one for both. Just make sure you always give it intravenously. 
Okay, okay, calm down guys. This is something we're gonna be using for our V-fib and V-tac arrests. We can also use this for our stable V-tac. The way that you're gonna be administering this is gonna be 1.5 mgs per kg. And so each syringe in our code cart contains 100 milligrams. So that's about one dose per syringe in the average human being. And you can redose this every five to 10 minutes. Now this is something important to keep in mind because this is a weight-based dose and a lot of our patients might be heavier than the 70 kilograms that would come out to 100 milligram per dose. So if you have a heavier patient and you're trying to break out of a VTAC arrest or if they're in stable VTAC, you might have to give two vials worth of lidocaine, just some mental math to do beforehand. And I think it's also worth remembering as we're going through this that both lidocaine and amiodarone are safe in structural heart disease, unlike a lot of other medications that you won't see that come in a code card, correct? Exactly. So this is why we don't have things like procainamide loaded up in our code card. You don't want to give those to a patient whose heart you don't tr truly understand. Lidocaine is going to be a lot shorter acting sodium channel blocker though when compared to amiodarone. So that would be good for something like cocaine induced VTAC arrest. And why is that? Because it's, it offloads the sodium blockade quickly. Right. Because they're competing for the same receptors. I love it, guys. So let's go on to our next drug here. And the next drug is gonna be mag sulfate. Now, mag sulfate is something we give all the time when a patient has low magnesium, maybe low potassium, and we think we need to replete both. But when are we actually gonna use it in a code situation? So I think the classic teaching is always the torsades. Perfect, so if we have torsades de point, torsades de point. Torsades de point. We're gonna be giving magnesium to try and break through this arrhythmia. And our dose here is gonna be a one to two gram IV push. Now our magnesium sulfate vials have one gram per every two cc's. So either you give one vial or two vials of magnesium sulfate if you're trying to break through what looks like a Torsades poiantes. I love it. So another scary reason we might be bringing out our magnesium sulfate from our code cart is gonna be a seizing pregnant lady. Perfect, Dr. Lupez. If we have a seizing pregnant patient, our differential diagnosis, one, two, three, four, I don't care how far you go, is gonna be eclampsia. And if we have a patient who is eclamptic, we're not gonna break this with our normal benzos and other things like that. We need to give these patients magnesium and give them big doses, normally five grams IM per butt cheek or a six gram IV slash IO load. All right, moving on to close to our last drug in this code cart is gonna be probably one we use most frequently on top of epinephrine, and that's sodium bicarb. What are the the indication for this, Drew? So there's tons of indications for sodium bicarb, but two really come to mind. The first is when you're trying to overcome any sort of uh, metabolic acidosis where you have profound acidemia. So every one amp of sodium bicarb contains 50 milliequivalents of bicarbonate. Now, a big thing to take in mind here is that 50 milliequivalents of bicarbonate is actually going to be in 50 cc. So this is a really big syringe that you're pushing. It's a lot of fluid. It is a lot of fluid. And the other thing to keep in mind is that one amp is going to raise your pH about 0.1. And the recommended dose is one milliequivalent per kilogram. So in most of our patients, 50 MEQs of sodium bicarbonate is not going to cut it. So you might want to consider doing two. Exactly. So if we have a 70 kilogram normal person or what we see very frequently, a 100 kilogram person, we need to give at least two amps of sodium bicarb to get our recommended dose. If we think we're going to stop the acidosis with this, we need to make sure we give a big enough dose. And the other thing that I think that people use sodium bicarb a lot without realizing what they're using it for is overcoming sodium channelopathies. So if you have any drug that's in effectively inhibiting your sodium channel, widening out your QRS, think your TCA toxicities and things like that, there's also 50 milliequivalents of sodium with the sodium bicarb. It sounds silly, but you can forget it. 
There's other things that we like to use high-dose sodium for, such as intracranial hemorrhage and increased ICP. And this is something we can reach for because sodium bicarb actually is 8.4% sodium. And actually, 8.4 sodium bicarb is the same osmolality as 6% hypertonic saline. Holy hypertonicity, Batman. So we're talking some hot, hot salts here. So basically, if we're giving sodium bicarb, it's like giving a huge slug of hypertonic saline, actually twice as concentrated as our normal 3% that we reach for. If we would normally give a trauma patient that we're concerned for increased intracranial pressure 200 cc's of 3%, then we could actually reach for 2 amps of sodium bicarb, which would be 100 milliliters of 6%, giving you a big old osmotic glow to help offload that brain. Tricks of the trade, I'm loving it. All right, our last medication to review, probably the one we all use the most in reality in our emergency room, and that's going to be our D50. What do you use this for, Drew? Usually I use it for hypoglycemia, obviously. <laughs> and uh, D50, as you would expect, contains dextrose, 50%. How much is that, Russ? That's going to be 25 grams of sugar in your 50 milliliters of fluid. And once again, this is a big syringe like our bicarb one where we have 50 milliliters of fluid inside of that syringe. So it's a tough amp to push, but when we're giving it, we want to give at least one, maybe even two amps for significant hypoglycemia. And we want to administer this as a slow push. Am I pushing that through a small 20 gauge in my wrist? It's going to be tough. The problem here is that D50 has high osmolality, just like our sodium bicarb. And if you put that much fluid into a small peripheral vein, you could definitely cause some complications with extrav and other things like that. So definitely administer this as a slow push, preferably in a big vein. Well, guys, I feel like I learned a lot. So just to review, open up your code cart, be familiar with what's there, maybe have a little bit better understanding of what your doses are and what the indications are without just having to ask your nurse. Know the tricks of the trade. Know how to create your dirty epi drip as well as your epi push. 1 ml of 1 to 10,000 code epinephrine pushed into 9 milliliter normal saline is going to give you 10 mics per milliliter. Also, remember your dirty epi drip, which is going to be 1 milligram of your entire 1 to 10,000 code epinephrine amp in a 1 liter normal saline bag gives you 1 microgram per milliliter. And then finally, bicarb. Bicarb has a lot more uses than just metabolic acidosis. If you have a patient that you're concerned about increased intracranial pressure, give two amps of bicarb, and that will be the same as 200 cc's of 3% saline. All right, guys, that's a wrap. We learned a lot today. Had fun with you jokers. Thanks again, everyone. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios in Carolina's Medical Center, this is your EM Guidewire. I am Ron Burgundy. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! Seems out. Usually it's a very rare condition called hypoglycemia. D50 contains something called glycemia. <laughs> <laughs>